Chapter thirty five of Max by Catherine Cecil Thurston. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter thirty five. Who shall depict the soul of woman? As well as say to number the silk hairs on the moth's wing, or paint truly the hues in the blown bubble. The soul of woman dwells apart, subject to no laws, trampled by no precedent, mysterious in its essence, strong in its very frailty. It passes through many phases to its ultimate end, working, as all great agents work, silently and in the dark. With the passing of Blake, the spiritual Maxine entered upon a new phase, was arbitrarily forced into a new phase of existence. The passing of Blake was sudden, tremendous, devastating in its effect, leaving as consequences a moral blackness, a moral chaos. It was a new Maxine who wakened to the realisation of facts. Rather, it was a new Max, for it was the masculine, not the feminine ego, that turned a set face to circumstance in the moment of desertion, that sedulously wrapped itself in the garment of pride spun and fashioned in happier hours. "'Now is the test. Now is the time,' Max insisted, drowning by insistence the poignant cry of the heart. And to this watchword he marched against fate." With set purpose, he faced life and its vexed questions in that bitter, precipitate moment. Again it was the beginning of things, but it was the Rue Muller and not the Gare du Nord that was the scene of action. The May sun fell burning on the Parisian pavements, while the blood of the adventurer ran slow and cold. The illusions bred of the winter dawn had been dispersed by the light of day. Life was no glad enterprise, no climbing of golden heights, but the barren crossing of a trackless region where no hand proffered guidance and false signs misled the weary eyes. One weapon alone was necessary in the pursuance of the grey journey, a sure command, a sure possession of oneself. This thought alone made harmony with the music of the past, and toward its thin sound his ears were strained. Comradeship had come and gone, love had come and gone, the fundamental idea that had lured him to Paris alone remained, stark, colourless, but recognisable. One must possess one's self. And to achieve this supreme good, one must close the senses and seal up the heart and be as a creature already dead. To this profound end, Max locked himself in his studio and sat alone while the May morning waxed. To this profound end, moving as in a dream, he at last rose at midday and left the apartment in quest of his customary meal. What that meal was to consist of, whether stones or bread, did not touch his brain, for his mind was solely exercised with wonder at the fact that his will could command the search for food, could compel his dry lips to the savourless duty of eating. As he left the little café, paying his score, he half expected to, to see his wonder reflected on the good face of Madame the Proprietress, and was curiously shocked to receive the usual cheerful smile, the usual cheerful good day, that took no heed of his heavy plight. It was that cheerful superficiality of Paris that can so delightfully mirror one's mood when the heart is light, that can ring so sadly hollow when the soul is sick. It cut Max with a bitter sharpness, and like a man fleeing from his own shadow, he fled the shop. Outside, in the dazzling glitter of the streets, the sun blinded him, accentuating the scorching pain of unshed tears. 
the very pavements seemed to rise up and sear him with their memories. Here, in this very street, Blake and he had strolled and smoked on many a night, wending homeward from the play or the opera, laughing, jesting, arguing as they paced arm in arm up and down before the sleeping shops. The thought stung him with an amazing sharpness, and he fled from it, as he had fled from the café and its smiling proprietress. His descent upon Paris was a descent upon a region of beauty. The scents of summer lay like a bloom upon the flowers for sale at the street corners, and shimmered, a ribbon of silver sunlight, across the pale blue sky. The trees and the grand boulevards shone in their green trappings. Rainbow colours glinted in the shop windows. Everywhere, save in the heart of Max, was fairness and youth and joy. Supremely conscious of himself, adrift and wretched, he passed through the crowds of people, passed from sun to shade, from shade to sun, with a hopeless eager haste that possessed no objects save to outstrip his thoughts. It is a curious fact that, to the desponding, water has a magnetic call. Without knowledge, almost without volition, his footsteps turned towards the river, that river which has so closely girdled Paris through all her varied life. Smooth and pale, it slipped secretly past its keys as Max approached, indifferent to the tragedies it concealed, as it was indifferent to the ardent life that ebbed and flowed across its many bridges. On its breast the small dark craft of the city nestled lazily. To right and left along its banks the sun struck glints of gold and bronze from spire and monument, while, close against its sides, on the very parapet of its quays, there was in progress that quaint book-traffic that strikes so intimate a note in the life of the quarter. It is a charming thought that in the heart of Paris, Paris, the pleasure city, there is time and place for the vendor of old books to set out his wares, to lay them open to the kindly sky, to tempt the studious and idle alike to pause and daily lose themselves in that most fascinating of all pursuits, the search for the treasure that is never found. Max paused beside this row of tattered bookstores, and quivered to the stab of a new pain. Scores of happy mornings he had wandered with Blake in this vicarious garden of delight, flitting from the books to the curio shops across the roadway, from the curios back again to the books, while Blake talked with his easy friendliness to the odd beings who bartered in this open market. It was pain inexpressible. It was loneliness made palpable. To stand by the trestle stalls and allow his eyes to rest upon the familiar merchandise. And for the third time in that black morning he fled from his own shadow, fled onward into the darker, older Paris, the Paris of tradition, where the Church of Notre Dame frowns, silently scornful of those who disturb its peace. As he approached the great building, its sombre impressiveness fell upon his troubled spirit mercifully as its shadow fell across the blinding sunlight. He paused in the wide space that fronts the heavy doors, and caught his breath as a fugitive of old might have caught breath at sight of sanctuary. Here was a place of shade and magnitude, a place untouched by memory. Blindly he moved toward the door, entered the church, walked up the aisle. Few sightseers disturbed the sense of peace, for outside it was high noon and Paris was engrossed in the serious business of déjeuner. No service was in progress. All was still, all dim, save where a taper of a lamp glowed before a shrine, 
or the sun struck sharp through the splendour of stained glass. There are few churches, to some minds that there is no other church, where the idea of the profound broods as it does in Notre Dame. The sense of dignity, the curious ancient scent compounded by time, the mystic colours of the great windows breathe of the infinite. Max, walking up the aisle, looked at the dark walls. Max, modern, critical, looked up at the wondrous rose window, and felt the overshadowing power of superhuman things. The modern world crumbled before the impassive silence. Criticism found no challenge in its brooding spirit, for the mind cannot analyse what it cannot measure. Max subscribed to no creed, but by a strange impulsion born of dead ages, his eyes fell from the glowing window and turned to the high altar. He did not want to pray. He rebelled against the idea of supplication. But the circling thoughts within him concentrated suddenly. He clasped his hands with a clasp so fierce that it was pain. "'Oh, God!' he said under his breath. "'God! God! Let me possess myself!' And as if some cord had snapped, relieving the tension in his brain, he dropped upon his knees, as he had once done at the foot of his own staircase, and, crouching against a pillar, wept like a lost child. End of chapter 35